This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. I can't think of anything that this would truly compare to in the modern court's history. The point is that the spouse of a Supreme Court justice was actively engaged in trying to overturn the election in multiple pathways. Tantamount to a revolution within a constitutional crisis. There's a connection between what the January 6th committee is doing right now and the Supreme Court, and that connection is actually not Jenny Thomas. Hi, and welcome back to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the Supreme Court and the law. That's my beat at Slate. I am Dahlia Lithwick. And this week was rather a lot. We got a whole bunch of new decisions from the Supreme Court. We had two days of January 6th hearings. While January 6th denialists were being voted into state election offices, And we got yet more news about, well, you guessed it, Virginia Lamp Thomas, who evidently corresponded, at least via email, with John Eastman, who was the principal legal architect of unconstitutional and illegal efforts to halt the certification of the 2020 election. Now, on Thursday night, the select committee that is investigating January 6th sent Ginny Thomas a polite request that she come in and chat with them. She told the Daily Caller that she would be delighted to stop in and, you know, have a little chinwag. Later on in the show, I'm going to be talking with Mark Joseph Stern about a couple of the cases the court handed down this week and some trends we're beginning to see toward the end of the term. And I also talked to him about Dobbs-omania that leads a lot of court watchers to insist that every decision day is a Dobbs day. That segment is crafted exclusively for our Slate Plus members, who we thank so much for supporting the journalism we do here at Slate Magazine. And if you're not a Slate Plus member but would like to access bonus segments from lots of your favorite Slate shows, completely ad-free episodes, and to never hit a paywall for any of Slate's articles, do go to slate.com slash amicus plus to sign up. Thank you again for supporting us, and that's slate.com slash amicus plus. We also have a special announcement about a new Slate Live event that is happening next Thursday. I'm going to be part of a panel with my Slate colleagues unpacking everything you need to know about all of these Supreme Court decisions and more. It's happening next Thursday, June 23rd, live in New York at the Bell House. I'm joining in virtually, but Emily Bazelon, Mark Joseph Stern, and Christina Catarucci will be there in person. There will also be a live taping of this season of Slow Burn, so head on over to slate.com supreme to get your tickets now. But first, how do you begin to describe whatever it is that is happening right now at the U.S. Supreme Court? To be sure, there are some conservative legal pundits and groups who want us all to believe that everything is fine there and oracular and good and just, and that a couple of liberal bullies are spreading leaks and they are threatening violence and fomenting unfair criticism of Justice Thomas's wife. And they're doing this in order to destabilize a perfectly perfect high-functioning institution. Indeed, some groups are now spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on ads to make exactly that case. But most of us with actual 
sentience and cognition would probably agree that whatever it is that's happening at the court isn't actually the result of an external smear campaign or public intimidation. They're probably aware that something is really different inside the court, and it feels like the wheels really are starting to come off. So yes, it's the leaks, but it's also the accusations that are being leveled among the justices in their speeches, but even more so in their opinions about one another. It is the partisan political conduct that under any other circumstances, the justices would just stop. And they would stop in the interest of protecting the institution itself. And yet, the stopping is not starting. And instead of getting better, it just seems to get worse. And this is all happening, I would posit, because the carefully burnished narrative of the non-partisan, non-ideological court has now collided with the bare-knuckled political story about the court that has been kind of hidden away, at least since Nixon reshaped that institution in his own image in the late 1960s. What is happening right now is essentially just a big public display of partisanship and power. And my own guess is that institutionalist curator of the myth of the oracular court, Chief Justice John Roberts, is probably spending most nights, as one of my colleagues at Slate quipped this week, just sobbing quietly into a very, very high thread count pillow. So today we're going to bring two of the smartest court watchers that I know, both friends of this show and dear friends of mine, to try to unpack what is going on and how this can possibly resolve, not just at the end of this term, but going forward into the future. Joan Biskupic is a full-time CNN legal analyst and author of several important biographies of Supreme Court justices, including most recently a biography of Chief Justice John Roberts titled The Chief, The Life in Turbulent Times of Chief Justice John Roberts, which was published in 2019. And Richard Hassan is Chancellor's Professor of Law and Political Science at the University of California, Irvine. He will be moving in the next few weeks to UCLA, to their law school. Hassan is a nationally recognized expert in election law and campaign finance regulation. His most recent book, we had him on the show to talk about it this past spring, is Cheap Speech, How Disinformation Poisons Our Politics and How to Cure It. So Rick and Joan, welcome to both of you back to the show, especially in a highly, highly, highly tiring and jammed week in June. Joan, maybe let's start with you, because I've heard you say many times over the course of this past term, and this goes back to the court issuing the shadow docket decision in Texas's SB8. I've heard you say over and over again that things are just markedly different and quite tense at the court. And now just in the last few weeks, we've heard Justice Clarence Thomas taking swipes at Chief Justice John Roberts in speeches. We've learned that The law clerks are, I guess, having to turn over their phones to be searched as part of the leak investigation. We read Sonia Sotomayor writing in dissent, essentially calling out her colleagues as conservative political hacks. And I want to start by just asking you how different all this is from the normal quantum of anxiety we always see at this time in June when the big ticket cases are coming down. And I also want to ask what it means that this kind of polarization and ideological anxiety that almost never leaks out into public view at the end of the term now feels like it's just (laughs) spilling out around the justices' ankles and down into the plaza. It is different. And, you know, we all hate using the word unprecedented, but I can't think of anything that this would truly compared to in the modern court's history. First, just look at the building itself. An eight-foot-high, non-scalable fence, then surrounded by even more concrete blocks. They are so barricaded in there right now. And there's a real sense of being under siege, not just physically, but think of the justices and all the scrutiny on them handling the most substantive cases that they have had in half a century. No matter where you fall on the question of Roe v. Wade, it is so gigantic that they're now on the cusp of rolling it back. Again, Whichever side you're on, if you're looking at that with horror or with glee, this is a big half-century turn that appears about to be taken one way or another. So between that, gun rights, religious liberties, the tension between the Biden versus Trump agenda, those cases are all before the justices. But then 
let's just talk about the politics surrounding it. And I think the reason you even wanted to do this today, Dahlia, is because of what emerged last week with the January 6th committee and Ginny Thomas and Clarence Thomas really bringing together the political intersection we have here. And I think that we have individual justices who've spoken out, as you said in your intro, not only did Justice Sotomayor refer to the stench that is happening right now and can the country handle what's going to happen next. Those were things that she said, you know, a mere couple of weeks, months ago, but just a few days ago, she referred to a restless and newly constituted court that sees fit to foreclose remedies in yet more cases. That was in a post-Bivens case limiting civil lawsuits against federal agents who violate constitutional rights. So it is ongoing between them and then also in terms of how the public is seeing them. And just to end on the note that you brought up with the chief. And Rick, I think I just want to ask you a version of this same question, maybe looking at it from outside the building. You've been watching the court and the justices for a lot of years. And I think you often talk about the decisions through a quasi-political lens when you talk about doctrine and voting. But as somebody who's been watching the court at least functioning at high velocity, effectively, yes, politically, but always functioning. What do you say about this partisan rancor and the internal divisions that we are now watching? It feels to me, as I've said, as though the wheels are a little bit coming off. This is just not the usual short tempers of June. This feels like something that may not be repaired come October. I do think that we're seeing a fundamental change. And one thing that I noticed on Wednesday when the Supreme Court last released opinions, I was sitting in front of my computer and every 10 minutes, as I hit refresh, I could see another opinion. But there was no announcement of those opinions in the building. That was something that got cut off with COVID when the oral arguments moved to telephone. But now the court's back in the building for oral arguments. And yet they're not giving the chance for dissenters to orally dissent, which is a very common thing at the end of the term. I rely on people like Joan who are in the room who can tell me, and the expression on this justice's face when she read this dissent, the emotion. This seems to me to be a calculated way that John Roberts is trying to keep some of the emotion that's brimming over from being publicly displayed. And it seems pretty obvious to me. And, you know, one person commented on Twitter, maybe they're worried about a security threat. I don't think that's it for this, because it's the same reporters who get in and the public's still not getting in there. So there really is, I think, an attempt by Chief Justice Roberts, who must be pulling out his hair, not only because of the leak and the emotion that is coming in the cases, but also because I think if you're a conservative like John Roberts, you kind of have the perfect formula to move the law in a way that is doctrinally significant without making waves. So imagine if instead of an opinion in Dobbs coming in the next few weeks that says Roe versus Wade is overturned, we had the court say, today's not the day to decide whether Roe versus Wade is overturned, but what Mississippi's doing is just fine. And then there's another case and another case, and it's the story of the boiling frog, right? Where you just keep raising by a degree and you don't realize that you're being boiled alive until it's too late. That seemed to work well. It's very different than what the five more conservative justices than John Roberts seem willing to do what our friend and colleague Lee Lippman calls the YOLO court. You know, now is the chance to make some change. And I don't think there's ever been a situation in modern times where so much could fundamentally change, not just on abortion and guns and executive power, as Joan mentioned, but affirmative action is on the block for next term. There's a major voting rights case that we may hear as early as Tuesday that the court's going to take involving the independent state legislature doctrine, which you and I have talked about before. It's not as though we're going to have this one blockbuster opinion of Citizens United and then move on and come back. And sometimes Kennedy sided with the liberals. Sometimes he sided with the conservatives. The court's fundamentally in the middle. It's not going to be like that anymore. All the conservatives on the court were appointed by Republicans. All the liberals on the court were appointed by Democrats. It's much more common now to hear politicians refer to the Republican Supreme Court. And There's a point to saying that now because it is more politicized and because things are not moving slowly, you have much more chance for radical change 
And the kind of attention that John Roberts does not want on the Supreme Court is exactly what we're getting. I feel like you're both making a version of this point that I was trying to make, which is since October, since the term started and there was anxiety about the shadow docket and there was the SB8 case and there was horrible polling numbers, we've had this sense this term was going to be different, that this was going to be the term where doctrine is just like a vending machine. You put in your quarter, you get out your Skittles, you want guns, you get guns, you want Roe overturned, you get Roe overturned. And I know that John Roberts hates that story and that Stephen Breyer, bless his heart, hates that story. And they want to say this isn't just the vending machine SCOTUS. And I know also we get a lot of squawking from the justices who say that story is not true and don't politicize the court. And Justice Barrett says, read the opinion, except there is no opinion because it was a shadow docket unsigned order. So maybe I guess the question that I'm presenting all of us with is maybe it's good. Maybe it's good to just take away that oracular narrative and call it what it is. And ladies and gentlemen, the court is now a vending machine. It's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on. And Joan, I think before we get to that big question, I want to ask you to tell folks who are not inside the building what these last few weeks in June look like. Just the TikTok. We've got clerks running around. We've got justices drafting opinion. They have to get out by July because they have fabulous places to go and things to do. But all of that now is being really inflected by this layer of worry and tension. And I don't want to minimize that there is fencing around the court and genuine threats and protest. So what do you do inside the court? How does it look? How do we get through this? And the public feels like it's pressed up with its nose against the window. What is it that is going on in the building? That's a good question, and I'll take it from inside the chambers. And then also what Rick nicely referred to is just what those of us who have been lucky enough to have been sitting in the courtroom for opinion announcements were able to observe. In the chambers themselves, typically the justices and mainly the law clerks, the real workhorses of the building, are working around the clock. They're crashing. They've got deadlines. And as in most kinds of writing, it doesn't get done until it has to get done, which is why the next two weeks is when we're going to see the biggest cases. And they're all working together and trying to get these opinions out and they're negotiating the last bits of it. And what's different this time is that the clerks don't have the release of certain get-togethers, happy hours, get out, you know, the solidarity that would normally happen in a positive way because they are under such scrutiny over this leak. You referred to the fact, Dahlia, that I'd reported that the clerks not only have had to sign affidavits, but the court officials have taken steps to figure out what kind of cell phone data they might want from the law clerks who are within weeks of leaving the building, going off to other jobs as their one-year stints end. But I have heard so much through lawyers who have been in touch with law clerks and law clerks themselves about the kind of atmosphere of suspicion that's on them. And it can turn out that maybe a rogue clerk did somehow pass the draft opinion of Sam Alito's reversal of road to Politico. Frankly, my money isn't on the law clerks right now. It's on other people. But it might turn out to have been a law clerk and maybe they're going to get to the bottom of it. But it's been six weeks now since Chief Justice John Roberts launched that investigation of the leak. And as far as we know, they have not turned up the culprit. So the law clerks are not just under the pressure of the work from anxious justices trying to resolve these big cases, but they've got this suspicion over them. And the justices themselves, they're working both in the building and at their many of them who have second homes. And the kind of usual tension plus camaraderie has dissolved. They have the demonstrations out front, but they've also had these death threats, obviously. So that's added to it. And then a key part for the public, the public announcements that Rick referred to. The very last time we heard a dissent from the bench was Elena Kagan's in 2019 in the very important gerrymandering case, the extreme partisan gerrymanders, which have so added to the erosion of democratic norms. And she gave a very mournful oral dissent from the bench. And even to hear that, but also to have heard Chief Justice Roberts' majority opinion for five of the nine saying, no, we're not going to intervene in these kinds of cases. It was important for both sides. It was important for 
us to be able to hear that. The tapes of those end up going up on the Oye Oye website afterward, you know, some months, years later, but at least the public can hear them. In real time, I can hear them. I can tell everybody what it was like in that room. And I think that's a very important slice that's, that's been removed. And it also removes that element of personal accountability on the part of the justices for what they have just decided for the entire nation. It's interesting, Joan, I was reflecting as you were just talking that there was a real push in some quarters after the Dobbs opinion was leaked to just publish it, to just drop it and have no dissents and it's done. The idea was that would squelch all the anxiety and the tension around the leak. And of course, what it would have done is the same thing you're describing, which is just cancel out the dissenters and have no dissenting voice. We don't need to sit around and wait to hear what Elena Kagan has to say. You know what? I don't even know if that's true. There were those reports. First of all, Politico got got it, that 98-page draft. But the subsequent reporting about no other drafts being circulated and everyone being on board, I don't really believe that is the case. I think we could very easily end up with five justices who want to completely overturn Roe v. Wade, no questions asked, because those have been the signals we've been getting. Obviously, Sam Alito thought he had five for it and five would stay together. I just don't believe that the chief has completely given up. Maybe by now, with only about 10 days to go, the chief has given up. But there's no way in my mind that people like Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett, despite their interest in completely reversing Roe, would have signed all the language that was in that first draft. That was dated February 10th, by the way. So think of all that likely was going on between February 10th when that supposedly was circulated, and May 2nd when Politico published it, I think that there were, at minimum, plenty of memos that went around among the justices. And Joan, I have to ask, are you going to tell us who your theory is of who the real leaker was? <laughs> no, because it's not, because, you know, I think I have a theory, but uh, they haven't enlisted my support. <laughs> no, no. I just knew it would be journalistic malpractice if I didn't try. Let's now take a short little break to hear from some of our sponsors. Hey, folks, I'm Preet Bharara, former U.S. attorney in Manhattan. On my podcast, Stay Tuned with Preet, I break down legal topics shaping today's news. And I'm joined by thought leaders to explore topics at the intersection of power, policy, and justice. In our increasingly complex world, clarity can feel elusive. My goal is to empower listeners with knowledge and insight during these transformative times. So I hope you'll join me every Monday and Thursday on Stay Tuned. Search for and follow Stay Tuned on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay informed, stay empowered, stay tuned. Okay, Rick, do you want to talk about this John Eastman story? Ginny Thomas is, as so many Ginny Thomas stories are now linked to John Eastman, and that is both jaw-dropping and also, not surprising, very much business as usual. And we've heard so many stories about Ginny Thomas in the last few months, efforts in connection with delaying and undermining the 2020 election. We've heard that she was communicating with Mark Meadows. She was emailing election officials in Arizona. And so this story about emails between herself and Eastman, I don't know. We don't know what's in the emails. I'm trying to figure out how alarmed to be the possibility that she was emailing with the chief architect of the coup. I mean, it seems bad, but is this a big deal or is it just a nothing burger or is it just kind of Ginny's gonna Ginny or is it of a piece with a much larger Ginny Thomas story that we have just become numb to? Well, the first thing I want to say is that without anyone saying it, you asked Joan the question of who the leaker might be of the Dobbs memo, and then we turned to a question about Jeannie Thomas. So I'll just leave that point hanging there. Uh, the evening that the Politico story dropped, I think my first tweet uh, in response was, you know, don't assume that this is a liberal justice or liberal clerk dropping this, because what this does is it shifts our discussions from the substance of what it means to overturn Roe versus Wade and to change reproductive rights in this country to one about palace intrigue. 
where the liberals could be blamed for the leak and then kind of soften the blow to the public because now we've telegraphed what's going to happen in Dobbs. And so I think it's very convenient. And I think there's a parallel thing going on here with Ginny Thomas. John Eastman this week took to Substack. I didn't know he had a Substack, but apparently he does, where he said, you know, all I did with Ginny Thomas was um, giving a briefing to her group on what was happening with election litigation. And that might well be true. But that seems to me to be besides the point. The point is that the spouse of a Supreme Court justice was actively engaged in trying to overturn the election in multiple pathways. Whether she was talking to John Eastman or not is kind of like superfluous. She's talking to the chief of staff, as you mentioned. She's writing directly to legislators in Arizona. She's organizing rallies. We're told that uh, what was it? she went to the January 6th rally, but she was cold is what was leaked to the Washington Free Beacon. So she decided she was going to go home. The fact that Justice Thomas ruled on a case that could potentially involve disclosure of information related to his wife's activities without any discussion of recusal, this is, I think, to go back to Joan's initial phrasing, this is really unprecedented. The wife of a Supreme Court justice is trying to overturn the results of a presidential election. I mean, this is something if the republic survives, we'll be reading about in history books in 100 years, or our great-grandchildren will be, I suppose. It is a situation that is untenable. And if the Supreme Court were actually bound by a code of ethics, or if Senate Democrats had the political will to bring up an impeachment proceeding, I mean, this should not stand. And I'm all for spouses of Supreme Court justices leading their own lives and doing their own thing. But I draw the line at fomenting a coup. I think that's a bright line that we could all agree. Anyone related to a Supreme Court justice should not do. Rick, I appreciate you telling us how you really feel and not sugarcoating this because it's been frustrating, to say the least, listening to people say that you cannot criticize Ginny Thomas without being sexist and wanting her to stay home and bake brownies or that whatever was happening on January 6th had absolutely nothing to do with her or the Supreme Court. But it does bring me inexorably back to you, Joan, and this image I have of the Chief Justice weeping into his pillow because I can't help but think I kept hearing all day Thursday, John Roberts is definitely going to do something about Ginny Thomas. This time, some line has been crossed, and John Roberts will be doing something about Clarence Thomas and Ginny Thomas, to which my answer is always, no, he's not. He's not going to do anything about Ginny Thomas or Clarence Thomas. He's not going to pressure Clarence Thomas to recuse in future January 6th cases. I think this is part of the trap in some sense, that John Roberts finds himself in, which is he has to keep pretending that everything is fine at the court, and that means everything has to keep looking like it's fine at the court. But I'm also curious, and I ask this because I was rereading last night some of the history of how much Chief Justice Earl Warren was involved in pushing Abe Fortas off the court in 1969. And the pressure was coming from John Mitchell and Richard Nixon's Justice Department, yes, but it was coming from the Chief Justice when Abe Fortas stepped down. But this is not Earl Warren in Abe Fortas. This is Chief Justice John Roberts. He has no formal power to do anything about Ginny Thomas. But I don't think, and correct me if I'm wrong, Joan, you know how he sees the world better than anyone. I don't think he would even take the moral authority or the leadership role and the informal power to do anything about this, right? That's right. In fact, you know, I'm glad you mentioned Earl Warren and Abe Fortas. It's so different. First of all, let's just take the two chief justices. You're talking about a man who had been former governor of California, who really understood how to work a room. He had very sharp political instincts, and he had he had the support of a majority on his court. John Roberts no longer really has a majority for many things. Obviously, he can still easily control on race. You know, Rick brought up the Harvard affirmative action case. Chief Justice John Roberts can control on racial remedies. He can control on religion. He can control on campaign finance. But there are lots of things that he can't control on anymore because of how far right his colleagues have evolved with the three Trump appointments. But he also doesn't have as much fellow feeling that sometimes even Clarence Thomas has among those conservatives. Obviously, many of his colleagues viewed John Roberts with suspicion. So he doesn't have 
as much moral authority as he projects outside the building, inside the building, at times. I don't want to over-portray it, but I do know that tensions constantly linger with John Roberts and the way he views his role as chief justice. But then also, just really practically speaking, he isn't the boss of them. He doesn't have any even real practical authority over Clarence Thomas, even if he would invoke it. And I think, again, going back to the difference between him and Earl Warren, I don't think John Roberts wants to invoke it. John Roberts, you know, he's always been in this narrow little world of the law. He hasn't been out there. This is all from 2005 on. This was all new terrain for him. He didn't lead a law school. He didn't lead a law firm. He projects leader, but he hasn't had to be in the rough and tumble of group dynamics. He was the smartest guy in the room, but he didn't have to tangle with a lot of them. That's where we're at. So he's not in a position in a lot of different ways to say to Clarence Thomas, do something about Ginny. And I don't think the majority wants Clarence Thomas to do something about Ginny. I think that this is something that has subtly divided them, but I don't know how much each of them is really expressing him or herself about what it does to all nine. And Rick, one of the reasons I always think of you, I'm sorry to say, in my head you are irreversibly lashed to Dr. John Eastman, is because you were, I think, one of the first and most dogged critics of the larger conservative legal movement that was, yes, inching away from John Eastman after January 6th, but not really. And you were pushing, I think, the movement sometimes even responded to your pushes, but... I don't think the conservative legal movement, to your satisfaction, addressed Eastman's efforts to set aside the 2020 election. And some of the theories that he was putting forward are still theories that are in currency around future elections. So I find myself wondering if you have some sense beyond, and let's play a clip here of Judge Michael Ludig testifying on Thursday And to be sure, Judge Ludig is clear and deliberate. It will sound very slowed down to you, but this is how he spoke to great effect. Let's listen. I believe that had Vice President Pence obeyed the orders from his president, and the President of the United States of America during the joint session of the Congress of the United States on January 6, 2021, and declared Donald Trump the next President of the United States notwithstanding that then-President Trump had lost the Electoral College vote as well as the popular vote in the 2020 presidential election. That declaration of Donald Trump as the next president would have plunged America into what I believe would have been tantamount to a revolution within a constitutional crisis in America, which in my view, and I'm only one man, would have been the first constitutional crisis since the founding of the Republic. So my question, Rick, is really to what extent is what Judge Ludig is talking about here not in any way confined to a John Eastman problem, but it's a GOP problem, a conservative legal movement problem. And I think you've been really pushing hard on the idea that 
the movement itself still owns a lot of these ideas. Do you have any sense from the hearings that latter message got across at all? Well, you may remember some months ago that John Eastman was dropped as head of one of the practice groups of the Federalist Society. Now, there's some questions to, you know, whether that was just an honorific or actually had any power. But what I thought was most notable about that decision to drop John Eastman was that the Federal Society did so silently and only through leaks. Again, theme today's leaks. Only through leaks did we find out that, you know, he was asked to no longer continue in this role, that, you know, he was just rotating off. That is, they went out of their way not to condemn a person who is one of the most responsible people for almost bringing down the United States government and stopping a peaceful transition of power. Or look at this civil rights group in D.C. that hired Jeffrey Clark and then, after all this criticism, quietly drops him. You know, he's just removed from the page as though he's never existed. Some of these people are radioactive, but what we're not seeing, there aren't enough uh, Judge Luddigs out there. People who are willing to say, and there are some, and some of them are friends of mine, but you don't see the conservative law blogs filled with outrage over what John Eastman was trying to do. I mean, that's just not what's occupying their time. They'd rather ask, you know, whether Sonia Sotomayor is showing enough respect in her dissent and whether using the word stench is undermining the legitimacy of the court, right? So there's kind of a changing uh, attention, trying to focus the shift elsewhere and not taking stock and saying, this is someone that came up from our own movement. And the fact that they'd be willing to do this, maybe that says something about what goals we've been trying to achieve. If we could follow the money, I would like to know more about what the kind of Leonard Leo connections were to all of these efforts to try to overturn the election results. Uh, Certainly, I think he was sympathetic to that if there were a legal way to do so, but they've just been kind of tiptoeing along the edges, not condemning, but not distancing. And, you know, that's kind of a position you take when you're cautious. You don't know what the future is going to be like. And maybe that's a politically expedient thing to do when we get into the Trump 2 administration. We'll be right back after these messages. It's clear that John Eastman stands as a symbol or a proxy for a whole bunch of things. But one of the things he's a proxy for is that he is a former Clarence Thomas clerk. He is involved with a network of former Clarence Thomas clerks. We have to face the fact that Ginny Thomas was sending emails to that network. And I feel pretty strongly, despite all that, that when the January 6th committee finally sits down with Ginny Thomas, even with the revelations of emails between herself and Eastman, there's just going to be a hard stop. There's going to be a refusal to probe. They will politely have some tea, but they are not going to intrude on the court's prerogatives. They are not going to intrude on an independent judiciary. Tell me if I'm wrong, but I just don't think they are going to probe, and I think they're going to believe it's inappropriate to probe, whether there is any meaningful connection between Ginny Thomas to John Eastman or to Mark Meadows or to busloads of people who showed up on January 6th or, as Rick said, her very physical presence at part of a rally, I think that this committee is going to be very, very careful to not touch any of that. Yeah, I think both you and Rick raised such good points in this regard about the dual roles that she might have been playing and John Eastman was playing. Ginny Thomas had her fingers in many things. She has a little bit more of a a conservative gadfly thing going on. She was working on Mark Meadows. She was trying to do this with Trump, that with Trump. But remember, she's she's not a lawyer. She started this whole episode, tracing back to 2016, being a Ted Cruz person. You know, she supported Ted Cruz, then she switches to Donald Trump. Then once he's in, she's all in for him, but in a different way, not certainly in a legal way, even though she was trying to steer people like Meadows to to Sidney Powell. So she has the weight of her ideas and influence, I think is, it can be questioned a bit rather than as somebody who really steered this ship, as Eastman was trying to do. I also think that the committee doesn't want her to be a sideshow. I mean, they have really serious business here. They have super serious business along the lines of the Watergate hearings. This is something so important that's happening in the country. And why, first of all, get entangled in interbranch 
issues, although there certainly are conflict of interest issues that should be explored, but is that the place of the committee to explore them? I don't know. And I do think that there is a level of establishment. Washington does believe in the separation of powers for all the right reasons. And will they think that some questions are inappropriate? Probably. But I think they also have been very good so far at trying to keep their eye on the mission that they have relative to January 6th, rather than getting entangled, as I say, in some of the sideshows. And Rick, I cannot have you here and not ask about voting, because that's what we talk about. You and I have both now waved our hands at this idea, but let's say it outright. Very clearly, one of the things that Judge Michael Ludig reserved the last few minutes of this hearing to say, and he made this point, And it's a point you've been making for many months, which is that this is not just about 2020. This is a blueprint, as he said, for 2024. Let's listen. Still, Donald Trump and his allies and supporters are a clear and present danger to American democracy. That's not because of what happened on January 6th. It's because to this very day, the former president, his allies and supporters pledge that in the presidential election of 2024, if the former president or his anointed successor as the Republican Party presidential candidate were to lose that election, that they would attempt to overturn that 2024 election in the same way that they attempted to overturn the 2020 election, but succeed in 2024 where they failed in 2020. I don't speak those words lightly. I would have never spoken those words ever in my life except that that's what the former president and his allies are telling us. And again, this is not him being willing to indict just Donald Trump or Donald Trump in a clown car with Rudy Giuliani or Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani being driven around in a clown car by John Eastman. This is, I think, Michael Ludick saying the entire Republican Party is going to try to do this again in 2024. And I even think of Bill Barr, who I guess testified quasi-heroically on Monday that Trump's vote fraud claims were bullshit and they were nonsense. But this is the same Bill Barr who was right out there arguing vote fraud before the election, falsely, by the way. And so you and I are talking, and we have a bunch of states that are still passing voting restrictions, still rooted in false claims about vote fraud that you've been debunking for years as long as I know you. And I guess I find myself wondering how much the public airing of the falsity of vote fraud, the falsity of the big lie, the consequences of it, how much of that airing even begins to touch the point you have been making for a very long time about vote fraud and vote suppression and the dangers to democracy of these efforts to set aside the vote? Well, you know, I think that in some ways, listening to the hearings are shocking because we get details like John Eastman demanding a pardon or Trump supposedly said, maybe it's good that they're going to go after Mike Pence. We're waiting to hear more of that. But on the other hand, the rough contours were known soon after January 6th. 
And yet we're acting as though the country is not on fire when it is. The gubernatorial candidate in Pennsylvania on the Republican side, Doug Mastriano, is somebody who is basically saying that he's willing to subvert the election results in 2024. In Nevada this past week, the candidate for Secretary of State for the Republican side, Jim Marchant, is also someone who has embraced the big lie. If the election comes down to Nevada or Pennsylvania, we're not going to have Brad Raffensperger there, the Georgia Secretary of State who stood up to Trump and wouldn't find 11,780 votes to flip the results. We're going to have people in power who might uh, actually do something. And so I think, and I wrote this in a piece that was in the Washington Post last Sunday, I think the most important audience for these hearings right now is 10 Republican senators who want to do the right thing. Rob Portman, Ohio Republican, conservative, retiring, maybe going to be replaced by J.D. Vance. It's going to be much harder after the November elections to pass any kind of anti-election subversion legislation out of the Senate if it requires 10 Republican votes, even if Democrats hold the Senate. And you think that Kevin McCarthy is going to put this up for a vote if he's House Speaker? We have months left to fix the Electoral Count Act. That's that arcane 1887 law that John Eastman was trying to exploit. We have just months to try to do more to protect election officials and election workers who have faced threats of violence. You know, we've talked about the terrible threats against Justice Kavanaugh, but there's other people out there in political power who are facing threats too, and they also deserve protection, like those who run our elections. It's a very narrow window. What I think the January 6th hearings are showing more than anything else is that there's a mountain of evidence. They were not doing this surreptitiously. This was being done in the open. And the fact that it may lead to no consequences is only going to embolden those who would do this in 2024. And remember that when Trump was trying to steal the election in 2020, he wasn't really using his presidential power so much as he was using his powers as a candidate to try to lean on other Republican elected and election officials. And he could do the same thing in 2024. This country is really in a bad spot. We've been talking about the Supreme Court, but I have to say is, where does am about what the court's been doing? It's not at the top of my list. What you just mentioned is at the top of my list. Are we going to be able to keep the rules so that the winner of the election actually gets to be declared the winner and take office? That's a very basic tenet of democracy, and it's one that is under threat like we've not seen in this country before. I think that's right, Rick. I think other than Judge Ludig, who made that clarion point that you've just made over and over again, I did not hear much of this at the hearing. And I think it's because you've now answered two questions saying this. I think it's because part of the problem is even the Bill Bars and even the Mark Shorts are really kind of satisfied to hate the player, in this case, John Eastman, but love the game of vote suppression. And... Joan, I asked Rick a final question about his bailiwick, and I'm going to ask the last question about yours. I do think that people like you and me who cover the Supreme Court sometimes fall prey to the mythology, the balls and strikes thinking, the thinking that justices are just oracles in robes. It's law all the way down. And we like that story. And I think we like to tell the story of the court in its best lights, the light that John Roberts would bathe the court in himself. My question for you is, you open by saying this term is unprecedented. I agree. I've never seen anything like this. And I do find myself wondering, we've all stipulated it's not good for the court when the public hears this story, but is it good for journalism? Is it better for democracy? Is it just better for the public to have the Band-Aid ripped off and to see the court covered like a wrestling match or a ball game? Maybe all that demystification is actually better for democracy? We need to see it for what it is. And I think there's a connection between what the January 6th committee is doing right now and the Supreme Court. And that connection is actually not Jenny Thomas. It's more like what Judge Ludig talked about and what Rick has talked about. Look at what January 6th was all about in terms of kind of election law and procedures, the independent state election doctrine that the Supreme Court itself could impose on people and change who gets to say who the state electors should go for. You could reject the will of the people and just have Republican state legislatures say what's going on. So I think 
what we're seeing, Dahlia, to talk about, you know, at the time we're seeing the destruction, the erosion of democratic norms, we're seeing the very real connection with the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court's role. And I think this has been building for many years. When I think of the kind of coverage that I provided back in the 90s for the Washington Post, when I was very happy to do a lot of featurey stories about what the court was all about, how it works, what's going on in a way that sort of tried to demystify it just generally. I won't even touch those kinds of stories anymore because what's happening is just so big now. And I do think that the court is playing a much larger role in terms of, is it going to keep the guardrails on or is it going to let the guardrails fall? And that's why I think the kind of commentary that Judge Ludig gave at the end and the kind of commentary that Rick has been giving all along, warning about 2024 and the potential role of the Supreme Court is very crucial to bring to readers and all audiences. Joan Biskupic is a full-time CNN analyst, author of several vitally important biographies of Supreme Court justices, including a biography of Chief Justice John Roberts called The Chief, The Life and Turbulent Times of Chief Justice John Roberts, published in 2019. Richard Hassan is Chancellor's Professor of Law and Political Science at the University of California, Irvine. He's a nationally recognized expert in election law and campaign finance regulation and a dear friend of Slate Magazine with his writing on election meltdown. Rick's most recent book from this past spring is Cheap Speech, How Disinformation Poisons Our Politics and How to Cure It. Joan and Rick, thank you so much for being with us on the show today. Thank you so much. Thanks, Dahlia. And that is a wrap for this week's episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening in. Thank you so much for your letters and your comments and your questions. You can always keep in touch at amicus at slate.com. We love your letters. And you can find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio. And Ben Richmond is senior director of operations for podcast at Slate. And we will be back next week with another episode of Amicus. And until then, do take good care. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.